Book Seventh, Chapter Three of The Wings of the Dove. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander. The Wings of the Dove by Henry James. Book Seventh, Chapter Three. Not yet so much as this morning had she felt herself sink into possession, gratefully glad that the warmth of the southern summer was still in the high florid rooms, palatial chambers where hard cool pavements took reflections in their lifelong polish, and where the sun on the stirred sea-water flickering up through open windows played over the painted subjects in the splendid ceilings, medallions of purple and brown, of brave old melancholy colour, medals as of old red and gold, embossed and beribboned, all toned with time and all flourished and scalloped and gilded about, set in their great moulded and figured concavity, a nest of white cherubs, friendly creatures of the air, and appreciated by the aid of that second tier of small lights, straight openings to the front, which did everything, even with the Baedekers and photographs of Milly's party dreadfully meeting the eye, to make of the place an apartment of state. This at last, though she had enjoyed the palace for three weeks, seemed to count as effective occupation, perhaps because it was the first time she had been alone, really to call alone, since she had left London. It ministered to her first full and unembarrassed sense of what the great Eugenio had done for her. The great Eugenio, recommended by grand dukes and Americans, had entered her service during the last hours of all, had crossed from Paris after multiplied poor parlours with Mrs. Stringham, to whom she had allowed more than ever a free hand, on purpose to escort her to the continent and encompass her there and had dedicated to her from the moment of their meeting all the treasures of his experience. She had judged him in advance polyglot and universal, very dear and very deep, as probably but a swindler finished to the fingertips, for he was for ever carrying one well-kept Italian hand to his heart and plunging the other straight into her pocket, which, as she had instantly observed him to recognize, fitted it like a glove. The remarkable thing was that these elements of their common consciousness had rapidly gathered into an indestructible link, formed the ground of a happy relation, being by this time strangely, grotesquely, delightfully what most kept up confidence between them, and what most expressed it. She had seen quickly enough what was happening, the usual thing again, yet another again. Eugenia had, in an interview of five minutes, understood her. He had got hold, like all the world, of the idea not so much of the care with which she must be taken up as of the care with which she must be let down. All the world understood her. All the world had got hold, but for nobody yet, she felt, would the idea have been so close a tie, or won from herself so patient a surrender gracefully, respectfully, consumedly enough, always with hands in position and the look, in his thick, neat white hair, smooth, fat face, and black, professional, almost theatrical eyes, as of some famous tenor grown too old to make love, 
but with an art still to make money, did he on occasion convey to her that she was, of all the clients of his glorious career, the one in whom his interest was most personal and paternal. The others had come in the way of business, but for her his sentiment was special. Confidence rested thus on her completely believing that. There was nothing of which she felt more sure. It passed between them every time they conversed. He was abysmal, but this intimacy lived on the surface. He had taken his place already for her among those who were to see her through, and meditation ranked him in the constant perspective for the final function side by side with poor Susie, whom she was now pitying more than ever for having to be herself so sorry and to say so little about it. Eugenia had the general tact of a residuary legatee, which was a character that could be definitely worn, whereas she could see Susie, in the event of her death, in no character at all. Susie being insistently, exclusively concerned in her mere makeshift duration. This principle, for that matter, Milly at present, with a renewed flare of fancy, felt she should herself have liked to believe in. Eugenia had really done for her more than he probably knew. He didn't, after all, know everything, in having, for the wind-up of the autumn, on a weak word from her, so admirably, so perfectly established her. Her weak word, as a general hint, had been, At Venice, please, if possible, no dreadful, no vulgar hotel, but, if it can be at all managed, you know what I mean, some fine old rooms, fully independent for a series of months, plenty of them too, and the more interesting the better, part of a palace, historic and picturesque, but strictly inodorous, where we shall be to ourselves with a cook, don't you know? with servants, frescoes, tapestries, antiquities, the thorough make-believe of a settlement. The proof of how he better and better understood her was in all the place, as to his masterly acquisition of which she had from the first asked no questions. She had shown him enough what she thought of it, and her forbearance pleased him, with a part of the transaction that mainly concerned her she would soon enough become acquainted, and his connection with such values as she would then find noted could scarce help growing, as it were still more residuary. Charming people, conscious Venice lovers, evidently, had given up their house to her, and had fled to a distance to other countries, to hide their blushes alike over what they had, however briefly, alienated, and over what they had, however durably gained. They had preserved and consecrated, and she now, her part of it was shameless, appropriated and enjoyed. Palazzo Leporelli held its history still in its great lap, even like a painted idol. A solemn puppet hung about with decorations, hung about with pictures and relics, the rich Venetian past. The ineffaceable character was the presence revered and served, which brings us back to our truth a moment ago, the fact that more than ever this October morning, awkward novice though she might be, Milly moved slowly to and fro as the priestess of the worship. Certainly it came from the sweet taste of solitude, caught again and cherished for the hour, always in need of her nature, 
moreover, when things spoke to her with penetration. It was mostly in stillness they spoke to her best. Amid voices she lost the sense. Voices had surrounded her for weeks, and she had tried to listen, had cultivated them, and had answered back. These had been weeks in which there were other things they might well prevent her from hearing. More than the prospect had at first promised or threatened, she had felt herself going on in a crowd and with a multiplied escort. The four ladies, pictured by her to Sir Luke Strett as a phalanx, comparatively closed and detached, had in fact proved a rolling snowball, condemned from day to day to cover more ground. Susan Shepherd had compared this portion of the girl's excursion to the Empress Catherine's famous progress across the steppes of Russia. Improvised settlements appeared at each turn of the road, villagers waiting with addresses drawn up in the language of London. Old friends in fine were in ambush. Mrs. Loder's, Kate Croy's, her own. When the addresses weren't in the language of London, they were in the more insistent idioms of American centres. The current was swollen even by Susie's social connections, so that were days at hotels, at Dolomite picnics, on lake steamers, when she could almost repay to Aunt Maud and Kate with interest the debt contracted by the London success to which they had opened the door. Mrs. Loder's success and Kate's, amid the shock of Millie's and Mrs. Stringham's compatriots, failed but little, really, of the concert pitch. It had gone almost as fast as the boom over the sea of the last great native novel. Those ladies were so different, different observably enough from the ladies so apprising them, it being throughout a case mainly of ladies, of a dozen at once sometimes, in Milly's apartment, pointing also at once that moral and many others. Milly's companions were acclaimed not only as perfectly fascinating in themselves, the nicest people yet known to the acclaimers, but as obvious helping hands, socially speaking, for the eccentric young woman, evident initiators and smoothers of her path, possible subduers of her eccentricity. Short intervals to her own sense stood now for great differences, and this renewed inhalation of her native air had somehow left her to feel that she already, that she mainly, struck the compatriot as queer and dissociated. She moved such a critic, it would appear, as to rather an odd suspicion, a benevolence induced by want of complete trust, all of which showed her in the light of a person too plain and too ill-clothed for a thorough good time, and yet too rich and too befriended, an intuitive cunning within her managing this last, for a thorough bad one. The compatriots, in short, by what she made out, approved her friends for their expert wisdom with her, in spite of which judicial sagittis was the compatriots who recorded themselves as the innocent parties. She saw things in these days that she had never seen before, and she couldn't have said why, save on a principle too terribly to name, whereby she saw that neither Lancaster Gate was what New York took it for, nor New York what Lancaster Gate fondly fancied it in coquetting with the plan of a series of American visits. The plan might have been humorously on Mrs. Loder's part, 
for the improvement of her social position, and it had verily in that direction lights that were perhaps but half a century too prompt, at all of which Kate Croy assisted with a cool controlled facility that went so well, as the other said, with her particular kind of good looks, the kind that led you to expect the person enjoying them would dispose of disputations speculations aspirations in a few very neatly and brightly uttered words so simplified in sense however that they sounded even when guiltless like rather aggravated slang it wasn't that kate hadn't pretended to that she would like to go to america it was only that with this young woman milly had constantly proceeded and more than ever of late on the theory of intimate confessions private frank ironies that might up for their public grimaces and amid which face to face they wearily put off their mask these puttings off of the mask had finally quite become the form taken by their moments together moments indeed not increasingly frequent and not prolonged thanks to the consciousness of fatigue on milly's side whenever as she herself expressed it she got out of harness they flourished their masks the independent pair as they might have flourished spanish fans they smiled and sighed on removing them but the gesture the smiles the sighs strangely enough might have been suspected the greatest reality in the business strangely enough we say for the volume of effusion in general would have been found by either on measurement to be scarce proportional to the paraphernalia of relief it was when they called each other's attention to their ceasing to pretend it was then that what they were keeping back was most in the air there was a difference no doubt and mainly to kate's advantage milly didn't quite see what her friend could keep back was possessed of in fine that would be so subject to retention whereas it was comparatively plain sailing for kate that poor milly had a treasure to hide this was not the treasure of a shy an abject affection concealment on that head belonging to quite another phase of such states it was much rather a principle of pride relatively bold and hard a principle that played up like a fine steel spring at the lightest pressure of too near a footfall thus insuperably guarded was the truth about the girl's own conception of her validity thus was a wandering pitying sister condemned wistfully to look at her from the far side of the moat she had dug round her tower certain aspects of the connection of these young women show for us such is the twilight that gathers about them in the likeness of some dim scene in a metalink play we have positively the image in the delicate dusk of the figure so associated and yet so opposed so mutually watchful that of the angular pale princess ostrich plumed black robed hung about with amulets reminders relics mainly seated mainly still and that of the upright restless slow circling lady of her court who exchanged with her across the black waters streaked with evening gleams fitful questions and answers the upright lady with thick dark braids down her back drawing over the grass a more embroidered train makes the whole circuit and makes it again and the broken talk brief and sparingly elusive 
seems more to cover than to free their sense. This is because, when it fairly comes to not having others to consider, they meet in an air that appears rather anxiously to wait for their words. Such an impression as that was in the fact grave, and might be tragic, so that plainly enough, systematically at last, they settled to care of what they said. There could be no gross phrasing to Milly, in particular, of the probability that if she wasn't so proud, she might be pitied with more comfort, more to the person pitying. There could be no spoken proof, no sharper demonstration than the consistently considerate attitude that this marvellous mixture of her weakness and of her strength, her peril if such it were, and her option made her, kept her irresistibly interesting. Kate's predicament in the matter was, after all, very much Mrs. Stringham's own, and Susan Shepherd herself, indeed, in our metalling picture, might well have hovered in the gloaming by the moat. It may be declared for Kate, at all events, that her sincerity about her friend through this time was deep, her compassionate imagination strong, and that these things gave her a virtue, a good conscience, a credibility for herself, so to speak, that were later to be precious to her. She grasped with her keen intelligence the logic of their common duplicity, went unassisted through the same ordeal as Milly's other hushed follower, easily saw that for the girl to be explicit was to betray divinations, gratitudes, glimpses of the felt contrast between her fortune and her fear, all of which would have contradicted her systematic bravado. That was it Kate wonderingly saw. To recognize was to bring down the avalanche, the avalanche Milly lived so in watch for, and that might be started by the lightest of breaths though less possibly the breath of her own stifled plaint than that of the vain sympathy, the mere helpless gaping inference of others. With so many suppressions as these, therefore, between them, their withdrawal together to unmask had to fall back, as we have hinted, on a nominal motive, which was decently represented by a joy at the drop of chatter. Chatter had in truth all along attended their steps, but they took the despairing view of it on purpose to have ready, when face to face, some view or other of something. The relief of getting out of harness, that was the moral of their meetings, but the moral of this, in turn, was that they couldn't so much as ask each other why harness need be worn. Milly wore it as a general armour. She was out of it at present, for some reason, as she hadn't been for weeks. She was always out of it, that is, when alone, and her companions had never yet so much as just now affected her as dispersed and suppressed. It was as if still again, still more tacitly and wonderfully, Eugenia had understood her, taking it from her without a word and just bravely and brilliantly in the name, for instance, of the beautiful day. Yes, get me an hour alone. Take them off. I don't care where. Absorb, amuse, detain them, drown them, kill them, if you will, so that I may just a little, all by myself, see where I am. She was conscious of the dire impatience of it, for she gave up Susie as well as the others to him. 
Susie, who would have drowned her very self for her, gave her up to a mercenary monster through whom she thus purchased respites. Strange were the turns of life and the moods of weakness. Strange the flickers of fancy and the cheats of hope, yet lawful all the same, weren't they? Those experiments tried with the truth that consisted at the worst but in practicing on oneself. She was now playing with the thought that Eugenia might inclusively assist her. He had brought home to her, and always by remarks that were really quite soundless, the conception, hitherto ungrasped, of some complete use of her wealth itself, some use of it as a counter-move to fate. It had passed between them as preposterous that with so much money she should just stupidly and awkwardly want any more, want life, a career, a consciousness, than want a house, a carriage, or a cook. It was as if she had had from him a kind of expert professional measure of what he was in a position at a stretch to undertake for her, the thoroughness of which, for that matter, she could closely compare with the looseness on Sir Lukstret's part that, at least in Palazzo Leporelli, when mornings were fine, showed us almost amateurish. Sir Luke hadn't said to her, pay enough money and leave the rest to me, which was distinctly what Eugenio did say. Sir Luke had appeared indeed to speak of purchase and payment, but in reference to a different sort of cash. Those were amounts not to be named, nor reckoned, and such, moreover, as she wasn't sure of having at her command. Eugenio, this was the difference, could name, could reckon, and prices of his kind were things she had never suffered to scare her. She had been willing, goodness knew, to pay enough for anything, for everything, and here was simply a new view of the sufficient quantity. She amused herself, for it came to that, since Eugenio was there to sign the receipt, with possibilities of meeting the bill. She was more prepared than ever to pay enough, and quite as much as ever to pay too much. What else, if such were points at which your most trusted servant failed, was the use of being as the dear Susis of earth called you, a priestess in a palace? She made now alone the full circuit of the place, noble and peaceful, while the summer sea, stirring here and there a curtain, or an outer blind, breathed into its veiled spaces. She had a vision of clinging to it that perhaps Eugenia could manage. She was in it, as in the arc of her deluge, and filled with such tenderness for it that why shouldn't this, in common mercy, be warrant enough? She would never, never leave it. She would engage to that, would ask nothing more than to sit tight in it and float on and on. The beauty and intensity, the real momentary relief of this conceit, reached the climax in the positive purpose to put the question to Eugenio on his return as she had not yet put it, though the design, it must be added, dropped a little when, coming back to the great saloon from which she had started on her pensive progress, she found Lord Mark, of whose arrival in Venice she had been unaware and who had now, while a servant was following her through empty rooms, been asked in her absence to wait. He had waited then, Lord Mark, 
he was waiting, oh, unmistakably. Never before had he so much struck her as the man to do that on occasion with patience, to do it indeed almost as with gratitude for the chance, though at the same time with a sort of notifying firmness. The odd thing, as she was afterwards to recall, was that her wonder for what had brought him was not immediate, but had come at the end of five minutes, and also quite incoherently, that she felt almost as glad to see him, and almost as forgiving of his interruption of her solitude, as if he had already been in her thought or acting at her suggestion. He was somehow, at the best, the end of her speech. One might like him very much, and yet feel that his presence tempered precious solitude more than any others known to one, in spite of all of which, as he was neither dear Susie, nor dear Kate, nor dear Aunt Maud, nor even, for the least, dear Eugenio, in person, the sight of him did no damage to her sense of the dispersal of her friends. She hadn't been so thoroughly alone with him since those moments of his showing her the great portrait at Matcham, the moments that had exactly made her high-water mark of her security, the moments during which her tears themselves, those she had been ashamed of, were the sign of her consciously rounding her protective promontory, quitting the blue gulf of comparative ignorance and reaching her view of the troubled sea. His presence now referred itself to his presence then, reminding her how kind he had been altogether at Matcham, and telling her unexpectedly, at a time when she could particularly feel it, that for such kindness and for the beauty of what they remembered together, she hadn't lost him, quite the contrary. To receive him handsomely, to receive him there, to see him interested and charmed as well, clearly as delighted to have found her without some other person to spoil it. These things were so pleasant for the first minutes that they might have represented on her part some happy foreknowledge. She gave an account of her companions, while he on his side failed to press her about them, even though describing his appearance so unheralded as the result of an impulse obeyed on the spot. He had been shivering at Carlsbad, belated there and blue, when taken by it, so that, knowing where they all were, he had simply caught the first train. He explained how he had known where they were. He had heard, what more natural, from their friends, Millie's and his. He mentioned this betimes, but it was with his mention, singularly, that the girl became conscious of her inner question about his reason. She noticed his plural, which added to Mrs. Loder, or added to Kate, but she presently noticed also that it didn't affect her as explaining. Aunt Maud had written to him, Kate apparently, and this was interesting, had written to him. But their design presumably hadn't been that he should come and sit there, as if rather relieved, so far as they were concerned, at postponements. He only said, Oh! and again, oh, when she sketched their probable mornings for him, under Eugenio's care and Mrs. Stringham's, sounding it quite as if any suggestion that he should overtake them at Rialto or the Bridge of Sighs would leave him temporarily cold. This precisely it was that, after a little, 
operated for Milly as an obscure but still fairly direct check to confidence. He had known where they all were from the others, but it was not for the others that, in his actual dispositions, he had come. That, strange to say, was a pity, for stranger still to say, she could have shown him more confidence if he himself had had less intention. His intention so chilled her, from the moment she found herself divining it, that just for the pleasure of going on with him fairly, just for the pleasure of their remembrance together at Matcham and the Bronzino, the climax of her fortune, she could have fallen to pleading with him, and to reasoning, to undeceiving him in time. There had been for ten minutes, with the directness of her welcome to him, and the way this clearly pleased him, something of the grace of amends made, even though he couldn't know it, amends for her not having been originally sure, for instance at the first dinner of Aunt Maud's, that he was adequately human. That first dinner of Aunt Maud's added itself to the hour at Matcham, added itself to other things, to consolidate for her present benevolence the ease of their relation, making it suddenly delightful that he had thus turned up. He exclaimed, as he looked about, on the charm of the place, What a temple to taste and an expression of the pride of life! Yet, with all that, what a jolly home! So that, for his entertainment, she could offer to walk him about, though she mentioned that she had just been, for her own purposes, in a general prowl, taking everything in more susceptibly than before. He embraced her offer without a scruple, and seemed to rejoice that he was to find her susceptible. End of Book 7th Chapter 3 Read by Lars Rolander